I invite you to follow in the Word of God as I read now from Matthew's Gospel. We've been studying Matthew together, but of course we're, we've jumped ahead quite a bit here for Palm Sunday and Easter. We'll go back to the earlier chapter next week, Lord willing. But I'm reading now from Matthew 27, beginning at verse 62, into the final chapter of Matthew 28 through verse 15. Listen to this God's holy word. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you can, as you know how. And they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, and now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is the reading of God's holy word. I have to say to you that it appears to me that some 1,300 people who will have been in this room today worshiping God worshiping the risen Christ, must all be very gullible and badly informed people. You don't seem to realize that you've been duped. It appears to me that you did not get the word that Easter was canceled. 
Not just for this year, but permanently. I just have to wonder, don't you people listen to the news? I'm talking about a story that has been at least as big as the ongoing chronicle of Anna Nicole Smith. I'm talking about that report that was heard on the Discovery Channel, March 4th, 2007, that said that the bones of Jesus have been found in a stone box. Evidently, you folks need to increase your TV viewing so you would be better informed of these things and you wouldn't have to get up so early on a Sunday morning and come out to church. The world would like us to believe that there's no necessity for Easter. Now, on the assumption that you're not informed about this particular development, I would just tell you a bit about the Discovery Channel's broadcast of this program called The Lost Family of Jesus. It's also a book that's made the bestseller list. Many people assume that it must be something authoritative since wonder of wonders, none other than James Cameron, the director of the movie Titanic, was the producer of this particular television show. And after all, we know that the Discovery Channel would only report something that was based on good science, right? Well, it seems that some 27 years ago, actually, it's not that new, A number of stone boxes called ossuaries were found in a tomb that was broken into during some construction going on in Jerusalem. And these ossuaries, which were boxes that upper-class people would, would come, and this may seem a little macabre to you, but after a body had decayed in a tomb and was nothing but bones, they would collect the bones and put them in one of these boxes, incised and carved and probably with a name on it. Well, a number of these boxes were found, and wonder of wonders, they had these names on, Mary on one of them, Joseph on another, Jesus, the son of Joseph on a third box, and then a name that is hard to construe because the language is a little bit controversial, but some would say it was Mary Magdalene, and then, best of all, at least for the theory of those presenting the show, was a box with the name Judah Son of Jesus, inscribed upon it. Now, maybe you're not so naive, because maybe you do know all about this, and you showed up at church anyway, because perhaps you looked at this and thought about it, and you understood that there is some rather strong opposing evidence to making a case here for the abolishment of Easter. I'll just give you that case real quickly. Number one, these burials are pretty clearly people from upper or wealthy classes. Only they would have been able to afford these ossuaries in the first place. Secondly, Joseph, the husband of Mary, died many years before Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. We're quite sure that would have happened in Nazareth. He was a poor man, never would have had the money for something like that kind of a burial. Thirdly, approximately 40%, this is a fascinating little tidbit, about 40%, I'm told, of the female population of first century Jerusalem was named Mary. This is no joke. You know, there were some years, a few years ago, and don't be offended if this is your name, but I told my wife that there are going to be whole wings in the nursing home 60 or 70 years from now in which women are named nothing but Brittany and Caitlin. Well, 
there were Marys all over the place in Jerusalem. You see it right in our text, Matthew 28, this Mary and the other Mary and this Mary. It was an extremely common name. So too was the name Jesus, by the way. Very common man's name in that time. And so those mere names occurring together really don't add up to very much. Add to it the fact that Mary Magdalene, there's pretty good circumstantial evidence at least that she is probably buried in the south of France. And add to it the fact that there really isn't a highly reputable biblical archaeologist anywhere who has thought for the last 27 years that these ossuaries have any contribution to our knowledge of Jesus of Nazareth. And guess what? Easter's back on schedule. Well, folks, media sensationalism has never bothered much to be concerned about facts. And I don't think that you were too disturbed about this if you were even aware of it. And I wonder if you, if you gave it any pause at all. Didn't you think it was kind of interesting that the facts, so-called, that they were bringing together here of Mary Magdalene, who was allegedly alleged to have had a child by Jesus and so on, that isn't it interesting that this is all produced just a year or so after all of that da Vinci hullabaloo that told us that Jesus had a child and so on. Well, if you weren't convinced by a badly concocted TV show that the day of resurrection is a hoax, I congratulate you. You're smarter than a lot of people think you are. In Matthew 27 and 28, we've read how these enemies of Jesus attempted to block the great truth of what happened to him in what they called his final deception. Now, there really is very little in the way of established fact in the history of the world that is on a firmer base of evidence than the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can state today that no age of the world ever needed to believe this fact more than this media-manipulated era that you and I live in today. It's very essential that we be people who can echo loud and clear in the confession of our lives and actions in the face of every agnostic claim, now is Christ risen from the dead. And when you hear of these renewals of malicious theories and and snide questions being raised like this, you ought to be able to turn to these things and say, just who is deceiving whom after all? First of all, today I want to remind you of how the miracle of Easter is based on very sound historic evidence. Our text here in Matthew 27, 65 contains a sentence that is just what an English literature analyst would say contains delicious irony. It's when the Roman governor Pilate is speaking to these very uptight priests and leaders of the temple and he, he tells them, giving in to them, he just wants to get rid of them, basically. All right, take a guard. Take, and, and it was Roman soldiers, by the way, that he was sending. That's just about a certainty. Not temple police. Take a Roman guard and go make that tomb as secure as you can. Make it as secure as you can. I like to think of two spiders inside a railroad tunnel. Here's Spider A, here's Spider B, they're having a little conversation. 
You know, isn't it annoying that at the same times every day, these huge trains come rushing through this tunnel, making all kinds of racket and shaking up our lives? Why haven't we thought of this sooner? Let's you and I get busy. We've got a few hours. You start on that side. I'll start on this side. And we will spin our webs across this entire tunnel and stop that foolish express train from coming through here and disrupting our lives. That's exactly what it sounds like when Pilate said, go and make it as secure as you can. A spider's web attempting to stop the mighty work of God. Eleven remaining disciples of Jesus were not looking for a resurrection. They were huddled in a room, locked away, hoping somebody wouldn't come looking for them. And after the weekend noise died down, they wanted to sneak out of town and get back to resuming the pieces of their lives in some semblance of normalcy again. They were utterly dejected. They had forgotten the promises about resurrection. The ones who remembered it were not his friends. They were his enemies. And so we hear them in verse 64 here of Matthew 27. The temple leaders who said, Pilate, look, we're sorry, we've already bothered you a lot today. By the way, going to Pilate, this was the evening of the Sabbath. Remember, they didn't want that Sabbath desecrated by bodies being on the cross, but they didn't mind breaking it by going to the Gentile governor's palace, which to them was a desecration of their Sabbath. And they said, Pilate, look, this deceiver, he's already got the world calling out that he's the Messiah of Israel and all of this. We could see something happening here if we aren't careful. They're going to steal his body. They're going to proclaim him risen because we remember he predicted that. Go make it as secure as you can. You might wonder, how do we know about this conversation? After all, there were no disciples present there. Well, it's actually not hard to explain that because early in the book of Acts, as conversions were multiplying in the early church, there are places in Acts where it says many among the temple leaders took faith in Christ and joined with the church. I'm quite certain there was somebody involved in this conversation who later was able to call Jesus Lord and and tell the whole thing to the church. If They said, do you know what was concocted? There were eyewitnesses who could tell. And we know something about Roman soldiers and how they do their business, so we've got an idea of what happened when they went to that tomb. Probably a squad of 12, if you're involved in a a round-the-clock guard detail, there are actually documents of the Roman army and all of its procedures and how they did things. It would usually be a, a squad of 12 so that they would be four hours on and eight hours off and four hours on and eight hours off. And they, they would always, hopefully, have four soldiers enough refreshed and awake and standing alert to be the guard and, and have things, you know, in place. And they would go to that tomb. They certainly would make sure they were at the right tomb. You can't imagine, you know, they would just assume the body was there. They would make sure the body was there. And then as they put it back in place, put the stone in place, the Scripture says they put a seal. We have an idea what this was, probably sealing wax a couple of large blobs, one on the lintel above the door, one on the rock itself with a cord in between the, embedded in the blobs of wax so that if you moved the stone, you broke the seal. There might or might not have been a paper there, but if not a paper, an impress of a Roman eagle into the soft wax would have announced, even without words, people knew what the Roman eagle meant, you mess with this, 
and you are dead, period. People understood that. And by the way, it is a well-known fact that Roman soldiers' penalty for failing in any way to do their duty or falling asleep even on guard duty was a simple penalty, death. They didn't mess around. So here are these soldiers, four of them awake, the seal on the stone, the perfect security system. There was no electronic surveillance that you could buy today that would guard that tomb door any better. And yet, what were any of these things but spider webs in the way of the God of the universe? This scenario reminds me of Psalm 2, one of the great psalms that predicts mankind and their behavior towards God throughout history. In Psalm 2, we read that kings of the earth and leaders of the people will gather together against the Lord and his Christ. What does Psalm 2 say will be God's response when mankind does that? I love it. It says, he who sits in the heavens will laugh. One translation says he will have them in derision. The power of vaunted kings and military leaders against the power of God is a bad joke. And God is laughing. Today when we summarize the case in favor of the fact that the body of Jesus truly was raised in a historical way, in a glorious fashion, there are many case items that we list, a dozen or more things we can sort of tick off, and you've heard these before. I'm not going to try to go through that in detail today, but just a, a reminder of a couple of them. This, the utter, utterly dismayed disciples themselves, the fact that they didn't expect this, that they expected anything else, and, and they themselves were incredulous when they got the reports. To the very absence of the body of Jesus, which no enemy ever produced, if If it was just hidden away someplace, where was it? Why didn't somebody get it out and say, look, here he is. You all know what he looks like. This is him. Nobody found it. Thirdly, the many resurrection appearances, even as many as to 500 people at one time. Mass hallucination? I wouldn't try that. You know, there's more than 500 in this room, but if you all told me you saw the same thing, I wouldn't try telling you it was a hallucination. Then the proof of the permanently transformed lives of the disciples turned around in such a way that for the truth of the resurrection, they were willing to go and face persecution and bloody deaths, almost every one of them except John. But we add to those proofs this one, and it just sort of puts a almost like an armor plate coating around the whole thing, that all of this took place under the most high-level, foolproof security arrangement against grave tampering that the ancient world could offer thanks to the enemies of Jesus, the hostile witnesses who provided one of the strongest proofs that the resurrection is indeed historical. It is based on sound evidence. Now, if we turn from that sound evidence in the second place, I want you to think about then how is it that people can still stand up and say otherwise? if the evidence is so sound? Well, to say otherwise, you have to do it on some basis of a deception. Either you are deceived yourself or you're deliberately deceiving others. 
and deceptions posed by anti-Christian skepticism almost always breaks all the rules of logic and evidence. You see how this conspiracy began to fall apart as these soldiers trickled back into Jerusalem, and some of them probably just became scarce, but it says some at least went and reported to the chief priests. These were the people they were responsible to. They'd been assigned to these men by Pilate, and they owed them a report. And they came back saying, the body's gone, a tomb door opened, an angel, an earthquake, and so on. And then what? Well, then came political damage control. And we read about that in Matthew 28, 11 to 15, the hatching of the cover-up. You know what wasn't discussed? At least not as far as the text tells us. Did anybody discuss among that group Maybe he really did rise? You know, these men knew that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They had been there in Jerusalem when that happened just a a week or two before this. And they even reacted to that and said, they didn't say it didn't happen. No, they said, oh, we've got to get control of this situation. And here now again, they don't say it didn't happen. They just say, we've got to put the lid on it. Isn't it amazing that human beings in their unbelief will do almost anything but face the simple facts? But these were people who were acting according to their presuppositions. And you see, people are often quite captive to their presupposition. What, what do I mean? What was their presupposition? Their presupposition was supernatural things don't happen in a natural world. They just don't. And so no matter what our eyes see, no matter what Roman tough guards report to us, it can't be true. It's got to be something else, and we'll go with our presuppositions, even to the point of being ridiculous. And so these authorities pay a large sum of money, and notice what they're doing is paying a sum of money in order to put out on the street and sort of guarantee the very same report that they were worried about preventing in the first place. Wasn't it? They wanted to say, well, his disciples will come and take him. We don't want that to happen. Now they're saying, his disciples came and took him. Everybody know this, please. (laughs) You see how absurd you have to become? How self-deceived you have to become to evade the truth of God? And the guards, of course, went along with it. Why? Well, number one, they had handsome bribes in their pocket. Number two, they needed these guys. Once again, the penalty's death. If the story comes back to Pilate, they really, really were asleep. Uh Uh-oh. We're in trouble. Well, the temple, got, the temple leaders knew that. They said, don't worry. We'll take care of you. We have enough influence with the governor. Just go along with us. You'll be okay. I like to use my imagination and imagine Soldier A, Anthony, trotting back to the barracks, comes back with his fellows. There they are gambling, spending their time in the barracks. And Hey, Anthony, where have you been the last couple days? Oh, you know that crazy assignment I got, that crazy Messiah that they thought, you know, we had to guard his grave. But you wouldn't believe what happened. And he tells them. And they say, uh-huh. And then he says, and, and now, you know, here's the story that you guys have got to believe. We were asleep. And these yokels from Galilee came down, no weapons, of course, but they snuck in. We were all asleep. They took the stone away and got the body out, and that's the story. Uh Uh-huh. Tell me another one. 
It doesn't sound very believable, does it? And little did these cunning first-century politicians know that they provided some of the best evidence. They armor-plated the evidence, if you will, that Jesus rose in real time and space history. Their seal, their guard, their paranoid stories led to them being overtaken in their own craftiness. And Psalm 76.10 was fulfilled when God said, even the wrath of men will yield praise to me. The only possible explanation for the failure of this high-efficiency guard detail was exactly what is reported. A visitation from the power of God left these men powerless before the same God who once destroyed an entire Egyptian army and their chariots at the floor of the Dead Sea. Now, folks, I don't have to tell you, I don't think, that the same determined attitudes of these unbelievers in Jerusalem as they tried to blot out what God had done by raising His Son in power and glory, these same attitudes are very much alive and well in our world today. You go to any bookstore, and you'll encounter them. You watch TV, you'll encounter them. People are still trying to forbid the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from their lives because there is no truth with more unwavering and hostile opponents in our world today. You can weave any kind of fictional account that just has a little scrap of something that seems like it has a foothold in in history, and it doesn't matter if you're defying all kinds of logical principle and vast amounts of, of reliable study that has gone on about the past and hard evidence. It doesn't matter. Christian skepticism does not care about the rules of evidence. It does not care about logic. All it has to do is weave for you a tantalizing impression or somehow insinuate an unanswered question, and a lot of people are held by the throat and captive to whatever is being suggested because they don't know any better. The 2005-2006 Da Vinci Code phenomenon was a a wonderful illustration of it, a book, a film patched together by half-truths, speculations, and some whopping outright lies from church history, things that were absolutely not in accordance with history. Nevertheless, millions of people were totally beguiled. This past Friday, I picked up the morning paper, the Lancaster Intelligencer, and I was reading a column there, a syndicated column reprinted in our paper from Washington Post writer E.J. Dion. I don't know this individual, but he was writing a column about the phenomenon of what has become well-known in the world of religion today, or may we say the world of anti-religion, a rise in what some people are calling the new atheism, a level of atheism that is much more aggressive than ever before. Richard Dawkins is a well-known author. Some of you may have seen his books. They're all over the place. Richard Dawkins writes in very aggressive diatribes. His, he has kind of a a Bill O'Reilly, no-holds-barred approach to what he represents, you know. Take no prisoners. And Dawkins writes about religion in all forms, but Christianity in particular, and says things like this, quote, all certainty about the next life is simply incompatible with tolerance practiced in this life. Well, that's interesting. Tolerance is the highest good of all goods. 
And so all things are now measured by that, I guess. And that means Mr. Dawkins is telling someone like myself that if I declare decisive, objective, undeniable truths from God, then I'm threatening his freedom in an open society to be an atheist. And I've become a dictator. And I cannot be tolerated. Well, there's another gentleman named Sam Harris. Writes in a similar vein in a book called The End of Faith. Sam Harris says, quote, We have been slow to recognize the degree to which all religious faith perpetuates only man's inhumanity to man. That's his thesis, and he prosecutes it with slashing blows. Tolerance, getting along, letting everybody do what everybody else wants to do is the highest good today. That's clear. Reading my Friday newspaper, I was pleased to see that the columnist, Mr. Dion, made the point that such rigid assertions from the new atheism are equally guilty, in fact, more so, of a worse arrogance and dogmatism than any of the creeds of faith which they so bitterly oppose. You can't have an absolute faith except absolute atheism. That's okay. That's where we are today. The deceit, the utter disregard for rules of logic and historical evidence have gone out the window in maintaining the deceits that attack the supernaturalism of our God today. Folks, as we close today on this Easter Sunday, I want to put before you the simple honesty of Easter faith. I've told you on other Easter's that while I trusted Christ as my Savior at the age of eight, it was an intellectual examination that I made as a college student of the proofs of Easter that poured I would say, concrete into my Christian life and put me in a place where I knew I could stand the rest of my life because here was the keystone event of all Christianity. And as far as I could understand, philosophically, historically, from any point of argumentation or evidence, it was true. Now, are you a person whose mind is open to hear truth that is built on reasonable evidence, to hear simple truth, well-established things, obvious things. You know, quite often it's contended that we Christians are just simpletons who park our minds someplace before we come into church, and then we make these, these great leaps into foolishness. Well, I tell you, the truth of the resurrection is so well-established, so well-documented that it stares you in the face, and you have to work hard to oppose it. You have to spin all kinds of strange webs to get around it. And I want to ask you, did the highly educated Pharisees of Jesus' day use their well-developed intellectual minds with honesty? Or were the 11 disciples in their simple incredulity at what they discovered the ones who were really being intellectually honest Who actually had their minds made up before even looking at the evidence on Easter Day? Can you really say to me that unbelief at its root is more honest? I'm sorry. I don't have the the that kind of just suspension of all the powers of reason to be an unbeliever. 
Now, there's someone today that undoubtedly has spent a long time in this life. Someone here who spent a time making for themselves a tomb. You've worked from the inside, not the outside, but on the inside, you've, you've made a tomb around yourself. And you've made it very secure. You've plastered the walls over tight. You've blocked any kind of entrance that was once there so that God is not going to have a way to get at you. And every time you've heard about the truth of Jesus Christ, you've said, oh yes, but that's for others. I keep that at arm's length. Thank you very much. I just want to warn you. The risen Lord Jesus Christ has broken through many a sealed tomb before. And he has scattered the toughest guards like toy soldiers. I need to ask what it is you're really afraid of in your tomb. Why is it you have to plot so hard and work so hard to refuse a new eternal life that God is able to bestow upon you? Don't fall prey to the worst and final deception of all, which is to be self-deceived and to miss the simple truth that Jesus Christ is risen. You can change that today before the day ends. You can pray in your own words, Lord, I want to let down these barriers. I want to break through this tomb that I've erected against you. Will you break in, please? I set aside my stubborn pride. Forgive me for all my lies and and deceitful arguments. Come and dwell in me. Change me like you changed those disciples who weren't expecting anything at all, and they received the world, a new world. I hereby am ready to call Jesus Christ my Lord, my God. The sound you'll hear after that is the sound of a tomb exploding. In the honest and open confession of Easter reality, you will find strength to face tragedy. Families in this church, in the last six months, we have had some powerful tragedies of death in this congregation. And I have thrilled to see ordinary men and women Christian men and women face death with reality and with joy and with the praise of their Savior on their lips. It all begins with a confident song of praise that says from the integrity of your heart, Christ the Lord is risen indeed. Let us pray. Father, take us from here If we must be simpletons before the world, we are delighted to be simple. If it means believing the obvious, if it means accepting that which can only be refuted in dishonesty and deceit, oh God, I pray that you change lives by the power of Jesus Christ assuring us of sin forgiven and heaven assured. Be born be reborn in us today for your own praise and glory. Amen.